Hello and welcome to the Bible and Me podcast brought to you by Precept UK. We are a charity based here in Salisbury focused mainly on Bible study resources and it's our mission to equip people to know God deeply and to live differently as a result. For more information, visit precept.org.uk. But firstly, I just want to start this off by saying a massive thank you to all of our listeners. We are so blessed now to be releasing Series 7 and we couldn't have got there without your incredible testimonies and reviews. If you aren't already, we would love it if you would consider subscribing so that you won't miss out on ordinary people with interesting stories about an extraordinary God. But without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I am uh, really delighted to be welcoming uh, Lyndon and uh, Celia Baring to the podcast today. Uh, They are well known uh, primarily for their work at CARE or Christian Action Research and Education uh, for the last 37 or so years, CARE has been declaring Christian truth and Christ's compassion in society, uh, whilst bringing a uniquely Christian insight to the policies and laws that affect all our lives. Uh, Lyndon was brought up in Wales, uh, uh, Celia in Brighton. Uh, Celia's worked as a primary school teacher and for the Church Pastoral Aid Society. Uh, Shortly after starting with CARE, in her mid-40s, she uh, was diagnosed with MS Uh, She recovered three years later and has held various roles at CARE, including prayer coordinator and operations director, amongst others. Uh, Lyndon is an Elim minister and has been the executive chairman of CARE since 1983, up until last year. Uh, They have three children, Daniel, Emma and Andrew, who are all in their 30s. Uh, Welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for for joining me today. Thanks for inviting us. Um, now, a question to both of you as we start, and I ask this to all, all my guests on the programme. How did you come to faith in Jesus, and why, why do you follow him? Well, speaking first, Nigel, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, so sometimes I ask myself, was it like journeying over the Alps? You're not quite sure when you crossed over. But when I got down into the, the city of the Lord, I realized I was a Christian. I went into a period of rebellion in my mid-teens. And then when I was 18, uh, the Lord hit me, hit me well. And um, I really committed my whole life to him. And the rest is, as they say, is history. Yeah. How, how did he hit you? What, what Was there a specific thing that happened? Yes. Growing up in a Pentecostal church that believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we had one senior man in the church who, in Pentecostal terms, believed that he had been given the gift of prophecy. So one Sunday evening, when the service was over, we were about to leave. Uh, he stands up and um, believed he had a prophetic word from God for somebody. And uh, it was uh, basically, in a nutshell, my spirit will not always strive with you. And it hit me for six. I mean, it really did. And I stood up publicly, which I'd never done before, in, in, in front of the whole congregation, and asked for God's forgiveness. And I repented and publicly committed my life to him. It was a remarkable experience. Um, now, whether it was some who wouldn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit today. 
It could be just a, a loving, God-given warning to this dear man, Jack Spencer, which he discharged, and um, it, it did the trick. Wonderful. And how old were you at that, at that time? 18. 18. <laughs> well, praise the Lord for that. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And how about you, Celia? I was also 18 when I came to know the Lord. My background was very different, um, brought up um, in, a, in a wonderful family, but we didn't go to church except very, very occasionally at Christmas or Easter. And um, I was a sort of a good child in the 60s, very healthily agnostic. I went to college to train as a teacher. And of course, in those days, most teacher training colleges were very church based. So I very cleverly chose one that wasn't because I didn't want to have anything to do with religion because I didn't. And the first people I met when I rolled up at the Froebel Institute, which is now the Roehampton University, um, my buddy, you know, they have this sort of newbie system and turned out to be a, a leading light in the Christian Union. And she said, oh, come up and we've got some friends. We're, we're having a cup of tea together. And I thought, these people are so lovely. And by accident, I kind of became friends with them. And after a while, realized they, they needed to understand the error of their ways. So I used to engage in uh, very helpful arguments with them to, to explain to them that God didn't exist. And so, that was September. Well, by February, um, I'd become a Christian. <laughs> and one of the main um, main instruments of that was a book that was very, very um, well read and, and very powerfully used by the Lord in those days, The Cross and the Switchblade, yes. which told the story of, of, a, of a Pentecostal pastor who went amongst the drug addicts in New York City and uh, by praying with them and by showing them the love of Jesus, their lives were turned around I remember reading that book and thinking it's, it's either lies or it's truth. And if it's truth, I can't actually walk away from it. Yeah. And so um, I came to Kensington Temple, <clears throat> and um, which was the church that, one of the very few churches in London at that time where you knew there would be a gospel message at 6.30 every evening. Um, Lyndon, by that time, was a student pastor there. And um, I, the whole service, the Lord was just speaking to me. And at the end, I went forward and... That was me done. <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> Kensington Temple in those days, the pews had been taken out and Rank had donated some beautiful velvet uh, tip-up seats with arms. And so the whole ground floor was beautifully arrayed with these lovely um, seats. Cinema seats. Yeah, cinema <laughs> seats. And there was a good gap between the rows. They weren't tightly closed. So when Sunday evenings, every single Sunday night, 360, whatever, Sundays a year, um, 52 Sundays a year, the gospel went out and, and people were invited to come forward pretty well every Sunday. And it wasn't like, excuse me, excuse me, as I was coming out, you would comfortably walk out of the, the row and come forward and there were people waiting to, to counsel you. So fantastic. And or equally, if you'd like to come forward for the laying on of hands for prayer, it was a culture. And of course, people all over London knew if you came to Kensington Temple on a Sunday evening, you would hear the gospel every Sunday. And there would be an opportunity. So people came, uh, non-Pentecostal students, others came bringing friends who were on a journey, knowing for well that if the Lord were to touch their hearts, there would be an opportunity for them to come. It's a great, exciting period in, in our lives. Yeah. Does, does that still happen? 
Does that still happen on a Sunday evening? No, it, it doesn't. But there's always time for prayer if you want to, after the service, quietly make your way. At, um, but in, 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 in our day, Eldon Corsi would say, who's the senior minister, you know, Christ calls us to come and, and publicly stand. So stand, walk to the end of the row and come forward with that old-fashioned Billy Graham crusade type. But, you know, thousands of people came to Christ. Yeah. Students like Celia every Sunday. And it was, it was a privilege. It really was. Wonderful. Now, I, now just a quick question to you. Why, why are you followers of Jesus? Because there may be people listening to, listening to this podcast and say, yes, yes, I've heard about Jesus. But, but why should I commit my life to following him? Why, why should I follow him? Well, the uniqueness of the gospel message, Christ came, the only son of God, born in a manger, grew, lived, and no sin. Nobody record, rec recorded any sin that he committed. His death on the cross, he came to reveal God to us. He's alive today. I can't but follow him if he is alive today. And he is reigning in the heavens and keeping these galaxies uh, in place. Um, how can I not but follow him? And follow his ways because there is only one from a christian point of view there's only one god uh, the father of our lord jesus christ christ came to reveal the father to us so i i find them um, i i think if i were to become an atheist i would require more faith than i have in jesus because to me it, it's obvious yeah and how about you Celia? Being a Christian, when God has answered prayer in the most extraordinary ways, and there have been times when of being so aware of of, of Christ's closeness and His love and His the way He has so I, I long to to say oh, I know I know Jesus well He's my friend I I think that's a lifelong thing that there is something about jesus christ that he is real that he is alive um and he's proving not that he needs to <laughs> proving that in our lives in the lives of people around us of course there are many questions and doubts which are natural but i could no more say i don't believe in jesus no more follow him than not believe that the sun comes up in the morning it's just something that that i know um and that so that may sound a bit arrogant it doesn't mean to be but you know there are times in our lives when it's been so difficult and you look back and you see how invisibly sometimes behind the scenes god has just incredibly brought us through we think often of eternal life as something we will pick up um you know at the at the uh, departure gate when we leave but jesus made it quite clear that eternal life was knowing him and his father. So picking up on Celia's point, if, if people listening are ambivalent or they're on a journey, we would say to them, if you want to have the experience of knowing God personally and his son, Jesus Christ, and having the third person of the Holy Trinity working in your lives, it's, it's, there is nothing on this earth that can match that experience. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And I would say to anyone listening, Come forward in, in humility and say, God, 
I'm not quite sure what this is all about, but if you are real, will you, will you make it known to me as I look into the Gospels? I want to come to know you. I want a relationship with you and, and with Jesus Christ. And God's there to answer that kind of heart's desire. Knock, and the door will be open. thing to ask somebody to do but um you wouldn't lose anything would you so <laughs> wonderful now i'm, I'm going to move on actually and and uh, lyndon you attended london bible college which i think has been renamed some time ago um london school of theology now uh and in 1971 i believe uh aged in your early 20s you attended the national festival of light what was this festival and how did God lead you from that to start CARE some years later? Well, the Festival of Light began as a movement of Christians nationwide across all the denominations in all the countries and counties of the nation. Christians were waking up to the fact, if I may quote a, a member of the House of Lords who said to me, Lyndon, in the 1960s, whilst Christians were asleep, Lights went out in Parliament that may never be relit again. It was the heyday of the charismatic movement. Many of us were attending conventions, interdenominational, charismatic, with a Pentecostal slant. And at the same time, the enemy was coming in like a flood. And we weren't aware of the spirit of the Lord raising up a standard. But I think people nationwide, young people, middle-aged people, family, marriage, were suddenly saying, Sheesh, look what's happened in our nation while we were asleep let's 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 turn the tide and then there was the decision to hold an event in trafalgar square on the 25th of september and tens of thousands of christians gathered together there was malcolm Muggeridge who looked out on the sea of faces the largest gathering of christians in the open air in the history of the uk and he says this looks like a festival of light <laughs> and that's how it came to be called on the day and uh, Celia was there. there. I was there. Um, newly um, terrified and bushy tailed, having become a Christian just a few months earlier. I went with my friends, who about um, ooh, 20 of us turned up, and um, it, it was the most extraordinary uh, time um, because, of course, so many laws have been changed. Uh, the laws against witchcraft have quietly been repealed, and laws allowing abortion just for backstreet abortions to protect women. But since then, millions and millions of ba unborn babies have been lost. A divorce, marriage was sort of undermined. Laws of, <coughs> excuse me, laws on obscenity, um, things that have not been permitted, either on the stage or in print, were now quietly, there was a whole liberalization of it. And um, it, it was a huge turning point. And uh, it's incredibly exciting to, to be there at the beginning. And Linda was there as well, because the night before everybody came to the Nationwide Festival of Light at Trafalgar Square, all the historic beacons that are in place right the way across the country, as the old-fashioned before kind of um, email, 
um, but with the way that you could communicate from one community to another, especially if there was a threat of invasion or danger. And of course, in, in modern times, we use those beacons for more celebration, the Queen's Jubilee, that sort of thing. But on the eve of the nationwide festival of light, all around the country, these beacons were lit. And on Kafili Mountain, who should be leading the way, marching up with these flaming torches, ready to light the bonfire and sing hymns and pray, and goodness knows what, was my lovely husband here. And so we were both there right at the beginning of what became the Ministry of Care. And I think we expected to go home and get on with our lives as, as usual. It was such an exciting and lovely gathering of believers and a sense of solidarity. No one uh, anticipated anything else. But of course, some of the leaders were saying to themselves, well, this is all well and good, but what are we going to do about it? And as a result, a charitable trust was set up called the Nationwide Festival of Light, the NFOL. In 81, uh, they asked me if I'd become the, the chairman um, of it. And then in 83, we changed the name to K. Wonderful. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? Uh, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about 35,000 people in Trafalgar Square, Christians, you know, standing up for the faith, you know, um, what would happen if we called the Christians to a similar thing today? I was just, that was sort of going through my mind, you know, um, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll get, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get them all to Trafalgar Square once again, but uh, I can just imagine that in, in my mind. Now, there are a number of, um, a, a wide number of excellent things that care does and and i guess looking back uh, from when you started you know you you probably would have no conception of of where the lord was going to be leading you and the sorts of things you were going to be getting involved with and, and the tremendous um projects that you've been involved with but um i understand that broadly uh, you campaign on issues related to three things one life secondly justice and thirdly, family issues. So my first question is, why do you do what you do? What motivates you to do what you do? And because you've been doing it for um, 30 odd more, more, 37, maybe nearly 40 years. Why do you do it? What, what motivates you to keep on doing it after such a long time? I think we grew up in that era of the Billy Graham Crusades, the Harringay, the London arenas, and all over the nationwide the nation, and and gospel proclamation was precious. People were getting converted, but no one was underlying the truth that we're called to be light and salt. Look in the Old Testament. Look how the prophets were in, were concerned about justice, about the widow, about the fatherless about the refugee, about the poor. And Jesus said, you know, he didn't say, I beg you to be the salt of the earth. Please, please in my name be the light. He said, you are. The only question is, are you effective? Are you salty? And is your light shining or is it hidden? And it, it, it hit us that it's not, it's not a social gospel. The gospel is the gospel is the gospel, but our gospel responsibility is to go out in fear and trembling and apply this every area of our lives yeah and of course um, at that time there were no organizations like care um, who had um, relationships with people in parliament um, now of course there are many amazing uh, organizations we work very closely with them but back then it was quite a pioneering thing 
Um, I can remember um, when Lyndon first began to say uh, he felt that God was leading us in this direction, feeling quite confused because I'd always assumed we'd be in, in local church ministry. And um, I was walking one day and praying and saying, so God, what's all this about abortion? Why, why is it such a big deal? Uh, because it was something I hadn't really thought about. And uh, I, I said, God, show me how you feel about abortion, which was a, a very um, daring prayer, although I didn't realize it at the time. And a few months later, um, we, we were um, involved in a rally in Westminster Central Hall, I think, which was um, commemorating the anniversary of the passing of the Abortion Act. And uh, during that evening, um, it suddenly, I suddenly were, had such an, an intense experience of grief of, of these lives that had, that had been lost and of all the women who had been affected and what it all meant for us. As a, and it, it just has never left me. Um, of course, this was um, made even stronger because round about that time, um, we had been told, having tried to have children for some time, that we, we would never be able to have our own children. So obviously my own um, grief about that was all mixed up in it. But not just the, the life issue, but also, as Lyndon says, the, the world is so full of injustice. And when you see the, the things that get got done, the things that people get away with, and the laws that had been passed that had consequences. Um, we just felt Christians need to be there, even if we do not succeed in um, making good legislation or preventing bad legislation, even if we don't succeed, we must be faithful, we must stand, we must speak out. And that's really something that's never left us. And when we met those few Christian parliamentarians they felt totally alienated and misunderstood in their local churches. People kind of didn't talk about politics because it was worldly. And the fear of the social gospel, which had was, was rampant, liberalism was rampant in London and around the world. And so the evangelicals who were in the minority in those days were fearful that this was a, a sort of thin end of the wedge of the social gospel. And some Christians believed it was um, worldly to vote. You shouldn't be voting even. So the idea of, not, of voting, the idea of getting involved, the idea of becoming a member of a political party, that was just backsliding. And so the NFOL and CARE had, a, had a, quite a difficult task to reassure Christians. We're absolutely convinced that the gospel is the power of God to save. And then our gospel responsibilities thereafter. And of course, as the years have gone by, um, many evangelicals have been the greatest opponents of care, but still thinking, aha, aha, this is the social gospel from the back door. We mustn't get too involved here. But as the years have gone by, we, uh, they've, they've, they've realized that that's not the case. And, um, and, and they are persuaded to vote. Some joined a political party. A number of people have said, um, you know, I'm only in parliament or I'm only in local politics because of care. Care made me aware it's an opportunity that I could take if God led me, and I prayed, and God has led me. Yeah, very good. Now, just give people a taste of the sort of, of the scope 
of your work and what are some of the different issues that you have campaigned on over the years just so just to sort of diff, the, the scope at this stage right I, I mentioned earlier the uh, fatherless the widow the poor and the refugee and they have been uh, linked in the old testament as called the quartet of the vulnerable and care has sought to apply in specific terms so for instance the woman who has suffered an abortion and and has felt that bereavement that loss to reach out to her and, and those women who've been and children who've been trafficked and those young people who are hooked on online pornography and and those who are addicted to gambling and those who are at risk at the end of their lives so in specific areas of concern of social justice and social concern we've applied ourselves very good yeah sometimes we have been proactive or ongoing you know some of these issues we have been um, involved in right from the beginning others have come online like um, human trafficking um but always we we are here to to assist the parliamentarians so very often we're responding to say um, somebody wants to bring forward a law that will make physician assisted suicide or euthanasia really legal. Uh, then we kind of write, okay, we're rallying the troops, we're, we're getting behind them, we're, we're resourcing uh, our parliamentary friends. But other times it's a kind of a, a being there as a presence and just keeping on saying human life is important we need to reach out to the poor it's not just about the unborn baby it's about the woman involved as well all these things right across the board we don't know of any other evangelical agency that has the think tank and the resources and the expertise to serve parliamentarians like care and that's not a boast there are many wonderful sister organizations that we work with and they're doing a fantastic job. But in terms of the quality of research, the quality of notes that we write, we're not allowed to write speeches, but we can write notes, which parliamentarians, I won't, won't quote me, but um, it, and, and, and parliamentarians say care understands how our parliaments work, how our assemblies work better than the elected representatives. So that's standing alongside an MP, a parliamentarian, a member of the Scottish National Parliament or the Welsh Assembly or Northern Ireland, and offering our services free of charge to provide research, to write notes, to make just, when we talked to these parliamentarians, they said, we could not have done it without care. That is absolutely wonderful. That is so fantastic. Um, you talked about i mean how, how do you go about your research i mean i mean that's that's a huge task in itself i mean you're talking probably statistics and data and collating it all i mean how do you do that well we'll say to a parliamentarian what do you need to introduce legislation to prevent assisted dying what do you need to introduce legislation to make to outlaw trafficking and provide for the vulnerable traffic person they'll say well we need this that the other we need that this and the other and we'll say right we'll provide it so we hand them the research that they can't possibly do themselves yeah. but they acknowledge that if they're going to do anything this is what they're going to need and it's an amazing partnership it really is god-given and we are ever grateful to him for the privilege of serving yeah. we have an amazing team of public policy people are, are so professional yeah. and some of them have been in post for many many years 
um, the, the, the lady who is our human trafficking officer, for example, is so well respected and what she doesn't know about the situation is is not worth knowing and uh, we are so fortunate with with the people that god has sent to us yeah lord morrow lord mccall and our head of public parliamentary uh, affairs were having tea together in the house of lords lord morrow was grieved because he'd heard about this romanian girl who'd been literally captured in london taken to belfast and to dublin and sold into the traffic and she was providing she was being abused day in day out hour in hour out and he was moved very moved so dan our director of parliamentary affairs says well why don't you introduce a bill into the northern ireland assembly and lord morrow honestly confessed i wouldn't know where to begin so dan says would you like us to draft a bill for you and he said oh yes so overnight a bill was drafted in in basic form which we thought would go through endless committees, it was tabled the next day in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Okay, it did go through a whole series of committee stages and it became law and it was the first country in the world to publicly outlaw trafficking and provide support to the traffic victim. And there's been many occasions like that when, when, when parliamentarians said, we really moved and we've said, well, have you thought about introducing a private member's bill? Never thought about it. Would you like us to draft the bill? You know, it becomes their bill and it's, it has their imprimatur on it and they can amend it as many times as they like. It's not as if it's all done and dusted in one go. But it's, it's that process of, yeah. of, of moving, sometimes taking years. Wonderful. Now, I mean, you mentioned one success story, if I can call it that. I mean, do others come to, your, to mind over, over the years? Things that you've done that you can be, yeah, that have just benefited people as a result of your work uh, so some success stories but maybe some some maybe more tricky areas i don't want to use the word failure necessarily but but areas where you've really it just hasn't turned out as you wanted it to turn out so the good and the not so good how would you answer that areas that we were early in wanting to do is, is children protection of children yeah protection of children no. particularly in from a point of view of, of pornography and that sort of thing and Lyndon um we here in the early days had a couple of bills didn't we yeah we got alongside Sir Tim Sainsbury we got alongside George Howard we got alongside uh, Cyril Townsend and working with others not exclusively alone uh, providing bills the indecent displays act Child Protection Act, Video Recordings Act, are all on the statute book today. And that provided, in those days, you could get pornography freely available, hardcore pornography easily available. Sex shops were opening up near primary schools and local churches. And, and we saw scores, if not hundreds, of sex shops closed down. We, we approached um, a member of the House of Lords. There was a a local government miscellaneous provisions bill going through the House of Lords and we approached him and said would you introduce amendment that required a local authority to determine how many sex shops would be in their county or in their area and of course our lawyers told us that zero is a number in law 
the owners of the sex shops didn't know that zero was a number. They said, well, we'll have one in every ward, in every county of the nation. So this uh, amendment to the um, local government Slane's provisions bill was, was, was um, successful, and it meant that a local authority could say, we will have no sex shops in that area or in our county or in that ward. So in, certainly in Soho, we saw scores of sex shops just boarded up, closed down. That's just one example of any. Yeah. This is in the days before the internet. Yeah. And um, so we've changed our policy very much to look ways in which children can be protected on the internet from, you know, seven or eight year olds can, can accidentally come across the most horrendous stuff. So that, so it's quite interesting how uh, a, a very um, core cause is still with us, but of course uh, has to be adapted through the years. And we've successfully persuaded this government that there must be age verification. If you want to access hardcore porn, you must prove you're over 18, because until you're 18, you're a child in law. And they've reluctantly accepted and agreed that this will be uh, implemented. Sadly, they're dragging their feet, but it's there in, 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 in statute terms, they've agreed that a person must be over 18 to access hardcore yeah. porn. Yeah. I'm just expressing them now to implement what they've agreed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for someone to say, well, look, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, what's, what's the issue? I'm not touching, I'm not, you know, why are you getting so het up about this? How would you respond to that? Well, of course, uh, there's no end of research, which is not sort of publicised, about the effects of watching pornography um, on the brain, particularly of a young adolescent brain, and teaching them uh, such wrong uh, things about sexual relationships and and making it a commodity and that sort of thing. That's one thing. Then, of course, pornography doesn't appear out of nowhere. Every porn film has been filmed. And when you, particularly when you think of child pornography, every, every child has been abused. And, and it goes on and on and on. And the other thing is that the way in which pornography has become so acceptable um, in our nation um, and, and the, the amount of people who are really... Um, looking at it and, and accessing it very, very regularly, what does that do um, for our whole generation? And of course you get shouted down, oh, well, you know, you're trying to be a nanny state, but you know, people's lives are being so distorted and the, the ripple effect on families and it, it, it matters hugely. Can you talk to married women, for example, are you happy for your husband to access this material? I've yet to find a woman who is comfortable about her husband. Because in, in, in the same way that she may not be comfortable if he was committing adultery yeah. or paying for sex, and it's in that category. It's, it's, it's as damaging in a marriage as going off and committing adultery or paying for sex. And, and he was talking about teens earlier. You know, who would have ever imagined that a growing problem among young teenage men is erectile dysfunction. This is not something we kind of think this is for some people, men who are retired, and it's an important matter to be dealt with. But teens 
have so absorbed pornography is to have that physical damage in their lives. So Naked Truth is a new ministry headed up by Ian Hen and Jen Henderson in Manchester. And they're, they're, they're a new powerful movement uh, going into schools, showing young people the dangers of porn and how they can, it, it's an addiction. It's like a narcotic and how you can be free of uh, addiction. So I'd want to commend Naked Truth and their work, yeah. uh, working alongside us. We're doing the legislation, they're doing the hands-on practical. Fantastic. No, no, and, and I obviously I'm totally with you in, in all of this. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm walking a journey with, with a guy at the moment who um, has this addiction and it, it has been extremely, um, what's the word? It, it's not been helpful, uh, to say the least, is all I can say. Um, Publicly, anyway. Um, now, um, have your methods of campaigning changed over the years? Or, or, or fundament, you've got fundamental principles that are the same, would you say? Well, in the old days, you would just protest with a banner. You'd come to the Trafalgar Square for the Great Festival of Light. And I remember marching through the streets of London with a banner. Uh, our son was probably four, five, six months old. He was on my shoulder, under my one hand. And in my other hand, I had this banner, abortion kills. Now, I, I still believe abortion kills. Mother Teresa was there. Francis Schaeffer was there. John Stott was there. It was the biggest pro-life march through the streets of London. But later on, I asked myself the question, that woman standing on the pavement who's had an abortion, what does that do to her? And I realized, although I'm as committed to fighting abortion now, I realized that those banners and placards, they may make us feel good that we are standing up for the Lord, standing up for the unborn child, which we still want to do. But we've done it in more, um, in, 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 in the public policy terms, and over here to support the mother who's going through the pain of an unplanned pregnancy, yeah. who doesn't know how she's going to cope with another child. Maybe the husband said, if you have that child, I'm going to leave you. And all those pressures that women are under, how can we support them and help them? So it's a mother and child, it's a both and. And that's how we've changed from that sort of public, rather strident, to a more subtle and hopefully more compassionate way. Wow. Wonderful. Yeah, very good, very good. Now, I, I, I am, I'm sure that you haven't uh, been on this journey uh, with care without some negative press along the way um, <laughs> you know anybody who who uh, stands up um, you know there's a verse um, in the bible isn't there um, you you seek to walk in a godly manner you're going to be persecuted you know Jesus talks about having trials and tribulations in this world etc so um, you know when negative press comes which inevitably it will have done how how do you cope with that how, how do you deal with that? Because that's, you know, anybody going through negative press for, for what you believe is right and honourable, you know, uh, must be very tough. So how, how do you deal with that? I would say two things. One, it, it, it is tough. And there are some dark days in our lives when we've, we've realised that lies have been propagated, that absolute untruths have just propagate as if they are truth and, and, and we grieve and and, and we, we get together and we encourage each other. You know, there's that famous dictum, 
two looked out of prison bars, one saw mud and the other saw stars. And sometimes, you know, we are aware of the mud and we're a bit low and then we lift each other up and say, let's look at the stars. God is sovereign. Christ is on the throne and we can only be faithful to him. And this is what the church has faced for 2,000 years. Um, at the same time, I think he taught us to be more gracious and more willing to listen. James in chapter three speaks about wisdom from on high is, is open to reason. So let's hear from the abortionist. Let's hear from the, the woman who's had an abortion and, and feels no guilt or shame and try and enter into others. I remember uh, Nola Leach, our um, chief executive, she was speaking at Oxford Union uh, and uh, it was on the subject of homosexuality and, and uh, Peter Tatchell, famous Peter Tatchell of Stonewall was the other speaker. And she was sitting next to him over the dinner before, before the debate. And uh, he said, you know, I, I, I want you to have your voice. I admire you. I respect you. What I can't respect is hypocrisy, where someone will stand up and speak very powerfully, and yet their lives uh, don't match you know, their, their actions. So, you know, sometimes when we are facing the lion's den, we sort of go in graciously, and sometimes we've, we've had a maul, you know, we've, we've been mauled literally. But that's the nature of the work. And I feel because God is so gracious and his grace and his, his presence and his peace, I think it's just, um, yeah, I think that's the story. Yeah. Yeah. So never, never been tempted to throw in the towel then? <laughs> never. Never, never yeah. occurred to us. <laughs> and we love our work. And of course, the other side, um, complementing complementing what we do in Parliament is the whole um, engagement with Christians and local churches, and uh, to see um, so so much going on in churches. You know, encouraging churches to to contact their local MP and say, "How can we support you? We're praying for you." This sort of thing, and and doing uh, election resources when general elections come up, and uh, when there are particular campaigns afoot, saying churches, can you can you get your congregations to do this, to write to their MPs, whatever it is. Um, and for me, uh, one of the first amazing discoveries I made as a as a Christian was the power of prayer and the accessibility of prayer. Not that we believe in prayer, but we know a God who says, ask, ask me and watch what I do. So right from the very outset, uh, we have always made it a priority at CARE to encourage people to pray, pray for our nation, pray about specific um, issues that we face in particular, and to see the army of, of intercessors uh, that exist. It's so wonderful, and that's an unseen power, isn't it? We, we cannot measure it. Yeah. Uh, I look forward one day to seeing in heaven all the prayers have been answered. And it's been, I think that's probably been my main role in care. To, to It's such an incredible privilege to, to look at how we can uh, equip people and inform them and encourage them to pray uh, specifically about issues and... Uh, that's so important yeah. uh, you know i think is we don't just say it we really really mean it that 
prayer is absolutely foundational. Um, and we've seen so many ways in which God has responded to our prayers in big, gradual, kind of tidal ways, but also in specifics. It's a unique uh, resource. It comes out quarterly, and the topics for prayer are a wider a range of topics for prayer than I've ever seen in my life. Now, we've got many, many organizations putting out prayer diaries for their ministries, and we love them. We love them, and they're a fantastic resource. But CARE's prayer diary that Celia writes is covering a plethora of subjects that even CARE isn't involved in, and, and so specific. When I think of the words of Jesus and James, you know, you have not because you ask not. And when you read these specific prayer requests that Celia comes up with, I mean, I'm absolutely amazed. There's nothing we don't know of any other prayer diary in the world, quite like the care prayer diary. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weapon, as Celia said, we don't believe in prayer. We believe in a God who answers prayer. But it's a wonderful weapon and people are so grateful. I don't think we publish anything in 50 years that people are more grateful for. A daily at home, right in front of them in black and white, they can see exactly how to pray on this subject. And of course, most of us have never prayed about these matters ever because they've never been brought to our attention. Yeah. That's a privilege for care. Yeah. Now, uh, oh, why do we have a week on music? Why don't we have a week on the church and society? So it's a, a lovely, I just adore writing it. One recently was the emergency services. And Celia went into depth of research to find out how to pray for the fire service, and how to pray for the ambulance service, and the arrows. I mean, it was just a, I, I was saying to her, you know, I, I, I never, I, I never dawned on me to pray about that and pray about this. So it's a free resource. So anybody, you know, can have it. Wonderful. Now, you set up, you set up the care leadership program some years ago. Um, and I know that... Um, Celia, you have uh, you've um, talked about living in leadership and written a book about that. Why did you set up the care leadership program? And tell us a little bit about the book that you wrote to do with leadership. Why, why has that been so important to both of you? Living with leadership was um, an organisation set up by the Evangelical Alliance uh, initially, um, because back then. Uh, you'd have church leaders who obviously have a lot of pressures. They, they would meet regularly with their peers and uh, would have lots of input and support. But the poor old vicar's wife was a bit of a bog off, buy one, get one free. And uh, there was a real need. Uh, and all you had to do was to gather uh, 20 or 6 or 200 ministers' wives right across the denomination, stick them in a room together and they would all minister to each other. It, it was dead easy. And, and we used to have events all over the country for many, many years. <laughs> of course, wonderfully since then, I mean, I'm talking about the sort of early 80s when women were hardly allowed to do anything in churches. Now, of course, the scene has changed enormously and the, the need for it came to an end. Yeah. And so we closed it down. And so I just sort of wrapped it up and put it in a book, um, all the stories. And, uh, I still, if I'm speaking, the congregation will say, I hope you're treating your minister well. I said, 
how, how, how could you know if you're treating your minister well? Well, if he's married, uh, ask his wife. And if she wells up with tears because of the generosity and the kindness of the congregation to her husband, you're probably getting it about right. <laughs> yeah. Now you'll need the leadership program. Sorry, what about the leadership program? Yeah. Yes, that was something different. Yes, it was in 1990 that David Alton, a young Lib Dem MP, decided to change the law and he introduced a private member's bill. At that time, you could have an abortion up to 28 weeks. And he introduced a private member's bill to reduce it to 24. And care got behind him big time, big time. And he said, we need a, we need a gathering in, the, in, a, in, a, in a public way. So we took the Albert Hall. Care organized the whole thing. We asked Graham Kendrick to write a hymn. He wrote one of the most profound hymns for me, that, for us, that he's ever written, Who Can Sound the Depths of Sorrow in the father heart of God. And every verse is about the subject of abortion. And we drop petals from the dome like they do on the remembrance service, red petals on the remembrance service. We drop white petals, one petal for every known legal abortion that had taken place. And these petals came down for minute after minute. And people stood with petals all over their head and shoulders and bodies, weeping in the congregation. It's one of the most moving experiences. And he was successful. Uh, we mounted a campaign nationwide and MPs were persuaded to change the law. Ken Clark, who was um, Matt Hancock's equivalent at the time, slipped in an amendment uh, uh, at the end of the debate, which would allow abortion up to birth for certain uh, abnormalities. And we were devastated. We were thrilled that the general age range came down to 24 weeks, but the thought that disabled people now could be aborted up to 36 weeks, no limit. It, it broke us. And we were having lunch, Charlie Colchester and I, with David Alton some weeks later. And it was the darkest day of our lives. And David says, until you alter, and he, we were in the dining room, members' dining room of the Commons, until you alter the membership of this room, which was filled with MPs and their guests, we will be defeated time and time again. So we came back to the care offices, and, and said, let's set up the leadership program. And, and we did. And it was on the back of that terrible defeat. Right. I, I, yeah. And the leadership program, what, what does it seek to do? And what have you seen as a result of it? We've had over 300 graduates go through it over the years. And we've got a good handful of people that went on to be um, MPs. Um, MSPs uh, and people in, in the various uh, governments, uh, parliaments, um, and in many other areas as well. And so that's been amazing. So we've got this whole kind of alumni of, of this bit of a kind of, you know, background network, which is wonderful. Um, and so, yes, we, we invite uh, Christians as they finish university to come and spend a year at, at care and four days a week they're put with an MP or or a um, member of the House of Lords or or a, a Christian charity or something and on the fifth day on Friday they come to care and they have lectures they have essays to write they have amazing speakers they have and what does it mean to be a Christian leader what does servant leadership look like how can we stand for the truth and yet 
demonstrate Christ's grace, that sort of thing. Dozens and dozens of applicants, and you've got a small number of placements, and uh, you know they go through a real radical, radical screening test. And uh, I was speaking to them last Friday. Uh, seven fabulous young men. I mean, really uh, talented, gifted young men who have got a passion to make an impact in society in their future. And girls too, fabulous girls. I look after the boys to pray for them and meet with them and do a bit of mentoring with them. When you talk to MPs about having a care intern, that those who know the program don't hesitate because the quality and the caliber and, and uh, what a privilege. There's no other program we know like it. No. How basic evangelical, firmly based on scripture, a biblical worldview and a biblical outlook on, on being light and salt in society. And and because it's, it's our best kept secret. We don't, <laughs> talk, we don't talk about where they are today because uh, that's in the Lord's hands. And if we talk too much about it, it might evoke um, um, a response that we don't want. So we just keep our heads down, thanking God for privilege every year of serving and training and equipping dozens of young people, not going into the Baptist ministry, not going into the Anglican <laughs> ministry. Wonderful that that is. Yes, wonderful that that is. Going into that world of politics and leadership in our national life, in business, in commerce, in law, and being a witness there it excites us. And I think, you know, if you were to meet me and Celia when we were in our dotage in the nursing home in, in Eastbourne and, and find us, <laughs> find me in the, in the nursing home in Eastbourne and, and say, is this Lyndon Bowery? And I say, yes. And you look back on your life, Lyndon, apart from your marriage and family, what, what gives you the greatest encouragement in these last years of your life in this nursing, nursing home? I think I will say the leadership programme. Yeah, wonderful. I thought I thought you were going to say that uh, our current prime minister had been through the care leadership program, but I wasn't sure about that. So we're keeping it hush hush. She's been through the program, you know. <laughs> now you got best. Go ahead. You mentioned um, it's on a biblical foundation, the the program, and I want to turn to uh, the Word of God, if I may, because of course this podcast is called the Bible and Me, um, and obviously our our. Our heart is to encourage people to get into the book. You know, we need, we need the Word of God and we need the Spirit of God, don't we? But unless we're in the Word of God, then the Spirit of God can't take the Word and use it in a person's life. So, so um, why is the Word of God important to both of you? Well, we believe it's God's inspired Word, all 66 books, and... And, you know, there's an extraordinary account in Exodus where uh, God said to Moses, you've found favor in my sight. And Moses says, if this is the case, do one thing for me. And if you imagine we have found favor in God's sight through Christ, his work that he's accomplished on the cross, resurrection and ascension, and, and Moses says, if this is true, or if I found favor, do one thing for me. Show me your ways. And as we've explored the Old Testament to, to see what are God's ways, what's God's heart, what's God's concerns, and the issues of social injustice, 
the mistreatment of the poor, the refugee, the fatherless, the widow, uh, is, is there, it's like a golden thread through the Old Testament. So, as I spoke earlier about the quartet of the vulnerable, it's God's word, it's God's heart, and it, it's God's ways, and we would be wise to seek to follow his ways in that matter. That reminded the other day of, um, okay, you read the Bible, but what's most important is for the Bible to read you. And uh, I love it. It doesn't happen <laughs> every time I read the Bible by any manner of means. But, but when I say, Holy Spirit, speak to me through your word today, you, you know where I am and, and what, what's happening. And suddenly, as I read something, Oh yes, it really it really speaks to me, um, and uh, I've I've recently uh, made the decision. I've I've got a bit of a bad memory. It was never good in the first place. I've recently decided I really do need to memorise more scripture. So I've got my little um, cards and and the verses. Um, I'm doing reasonably well, um, but um, that, that again, in the middle of the night, if I'm waking up and I'm worried about something, to be able to say well. The Bible says, you know, they that wait on the Lord will, will renew their strength, they'll rise up, like you know, whatever it is, a, a lovely verse that can kind of inform and comfort and lead and sometimes rebuke and say, no, 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 this is not the right way to be reacting. Um, it's just amazing. I don't know, Nigel, if you've heard of a man, he was a 19th century uh, preacher called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Would that be yes. known to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. Very well known. Yeah, very well known. Yeah. Yeah. But he said the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but change our lives, change the way we live, change the way we conduct ourselves in marriage, in the family, in parenting, in with our non-Christian neighbour, in the issues of social justice. So we, we have no other manual. We have no other guide. Simply the Bible. And, and uh, it's a privilege. Amen. It's, it's a bit like food, of course, it's the bread of life, uh, the Bible is sometimes. So, and, and some we eat every day, um, and it just sort of, you know, you just eat. And then there are certain uh, things that we eat too. And it's the same with, with the Bible, that if we are able to read it on, on a regular basis, to really try to read the right way through it, maybe, in a couple of years, maybe in one year, there's lots of amazing, but then also to, to be aware of where you need your vitamins. And <laughs> well, I can't carry it too far, but, but you know what I'm saying. And so the Bible can speak into our lives in so many different ways. And, and, and it can equip us, it can make us wise uh, as we think about situations, troublesome situations and relationships. It, 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 just is an unlimited treasure that that uh, is is good for absolutely every situation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, amen to that. Um, I mean, obviously, I didn't know what you were going to say, but <laughs> I would say absolutely amen to that. And and you know, um, if you're listening to this podcast and you've heard what uh, Lyndon and Celia have had to say about the Bible, and you want some uh, help with reading it, studying it, looking at it, please contact us at Precept. We will be delighted to um, reach out to you and to 
to give you the tools. Um, it's interesting. You're giving MPs the tools, the notes, the you know the advice for what they need to do, what they need to do. And as a ministry, our heart is to do that with people all ages and stages um, to give them the tools. Actually, the the practical tools. I think there's you know there's one thing to read it, but then to study it is like a, a different level altogether, isn't it? And uh, nobody's more surprised than my wife and I uh, involved in this ministry because we were not very academic. Uh, you know, but we had a heart to get to know God. And it was David Jackman, who you may know, said to us at one weekend we'd been at, he said, look, if you want to know God, then you've really got to read the Bible. You, you've got to read and study the Bible because that's where he reveals himself. And I was thinking to myself, well, the Bible's this thick. You know, it's a bit complicated. I'm, you know, I'm a bear of little brain. You know, how am I going to do this? <laughs> And uh, and it was it was in answer to a prayer, actually, to get to know him that we came across this organization called Precept. And then I was I was serving the army at the time. Um, and uh, some years later, the Lord led me to leave and to, to work for Precept with my wife, just as you guys are working together. Um, and nothing thrills our hearts more than to see the light bulbs go on as people meet God yeah. in his word and then the impact the very real impact that it has so your description of the word of God and is so encouraging and um, I think people out there need to know this is a supernatural divine unique book yeah. um, and and if we want to know God whatever people think about who God is then we need to read the book but we need help to read the book uh, yes. And that's what we're seeking to do as a ministry. Now, do you have a favourite Bible book or character? And now I know being an Elam minister, that's probably a tough question for you, Lyndon, you know, preaching and, you know, but. If I could only uh, spend time with one apostle in heaven, for me personally, it would be James. I'd like to live next door to him. He being the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church with Peter and John as, as Paul went abroad, um, I find his practical teaching so relevant and good for me. And I keep thinking of him growing up with Jesus as a half-brother. He'd have insights um, that maybe others didn't have. So that curious what was it like? What was he like to grow up with? And what did you learn from him? And what's the Holy Spirit revealed to you? So I think if I could only take one book uh, um, for the rest of my life, I, I think it's the book of James. <laughs> How about you, Celia? Which, which book of the Bible or character? Say again. I did I... I didn't hear that. Say that again, sorry. It's a difficult question to answer. Yes. But I would want uh, I would want Psalms, I think. Okay. And then have a New Testament one, I'd like Colossians. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, and what about a favourite Bible verse, Celia? Do you have a, a, a verse that you just... Mm. Uh, like a uh, life verse? Yes. Well, Philippians 4, and it says... Is about nothing, but with with, uh, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And 
then the peace of God will just fill your life and make things uh, come come to light and uh, give you wisdom. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, now you you have been married for forty six years, which is an incredible thing to celebrate and an achievement so many congratulations for that um, my, molly and i are a few years behind you uh do you have any um top tips for married couples out there well when i'm talking to young guys who are you know courting or engaged or considering marriage or have just been married uh, i said in very positive terms i think it is impossible for a man to fully understand a woman, impossible. And I think it's impossible for a woman to fully understand a man. And don't treat that as negative, but see your partner as a, a mine, a gold mine, a diamond mine. You're never going to ex- uh, out, 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 um, exhaust the diamonds and, and the nuggets of gold that you'll find. There'll be lots of... Um, slurry and and <laughs> muck on the way but keep mining keep looking keep finding and and there's it's unending and and that's a reason i think that so many people divorce because they say well men are from mars women are from venus i just can't get on with incompatible but see it as a challenge uh, an exciting adventure for the rest of your lives and there are ups and downs obviously you seasons when you feel more loving and seasons when you you wonder, etc. But keep going because you're never going to exhaust the beauty and the wonder and the, and the gold and the diamonds that are there. Um, I think that's my principal um, encouragement. I think. One, one. Something that is so precious is if where you have areas of your lives where you are in true partnership. That's going to be obviously in parenting. Uh, Linda and I have been so by being able to work side by side, very different roles and, and um, skills and, and giftings, but we're working alongside another. We're both following the same star. Uh, we, we, our lives are, are devoted to, to following Jesus and, I think if you take that away, that sense of partnership, and for other people, you know, one person might be a, a, a geologist and the other person might be a GP. You know, their, their work is miles apart, but that, so that's not right for them. But to find that place of equal partnership, of, of how you come together and, and complement one another and, and you're following the same thing, I think that gets you through an awful lot of, stuff that it obviously comes. The first five years of our marriage, I think we went out every single Friday evening for two weeks of the year. Humble little restaurants, nothing flashy, nothing expensive. We'd sit opposite each other and have a meal and no distractions, no phones, no one knocking the door. And Celia would say to me, darling, listen to me with your eyes. And we've done that, listening to each other with our eyes, concentrating, trying to hear the other person, and not what you interpret them, but try and understand and listen and listen. And um, we still do it to this day. Yes, and it, we don't always succeed, but it's by sticking together and, and, and to, to really, such a, so easy to, to 
be able to see the other person's faults and shortcomings and oh I wish he was more this or I you know I gave up that because it was all so different um isn't helpful that we need to to acknowledge where there are differences and no one person can completely satisfy another but to really uh, celebrate uh, the, the great things uh, about it and being married to Lyndon has never ever been boring it's been an amazing adventure it's been so wonderful to to be with a man who is absolutely sold out to serve God and uh, we just had and so much fun together, so much laughter. I never <laughs> ever bought you. Murder you? Yes, Possibly. but never bought you. <laughs> but he's still alive, so that's a good sign. All right. Well, listen, um, I want to thank you both for your time today. And, um, and thank you for serving. You know, ultimately, yes, you're running care. But really, you're serving God, aren't you? Ultimately, you're serving him, and he happens to have called you to serve him in this really, really important role that you are. And, um, you know, thank you, Nigel, for your call on your life and this ministry that God's led you and your wife to. And we want to say to listeners whatever resources Nigel has on offer to you, consider them. If it makes you fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ afresh, it makes you enter into a deeper personal relationship with God, understanding his word and how it will affect your lives, you will never, ever regret it. Mm, yeah. Well, listen, God bless you both. Um, you. And, um, you know, may there be many years ahead where you continue to do this. And I pray that God would continue to, you know, when that day of retirement, although we know that, you know, in the kingdom, there is no retirement, of course. Yep. Um, but that God keeps t- uh, bringing you... Um, uh, insights into what um, the fruit that you have um, borne as a result of your of your ministry so thank you so much for being on the podcast today bless you Nigel bye bye Nigel